1: I'm John Dankosky. Today, three stories about health. Coming up, why more black Americans don't choose hospice care, and how some doctors are working to integrate mental and physical health in the primary care physician's office. But first, while Connecticut students do pretty well on standardized tests when compared to students in other states, low-income minority students living in urban areas still lag behind their classmates. It's one of the biggest achievement gaps in the country. This has led to many efforts to help close this gap, but almost all of these efforts are focused in the classroom, or at least on the school experience. Few focused on the role of good health and health habits in achievement. Yet the CDC says hunger, physical and emotional abuse, and physical inactivity and obesity are all linked to poor grades. The good news is there are several efforts around the state to improve health as a way to close this achievement gap. Comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us in studio today is Dr. Lisa, Lisa Honingfeld, who's Vice President for Health Initiatives, the Child Health and Development Institute. Welcome back to the program, Doctor. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Also joining us by phone is Jody Mosier-Gill, who's Assistant Professor in Journalism at Southern Connecticut State University. She also writes for the Connecticut Health Investigative Team, where we read her story. And Jody, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here as well. Thanks for having me. First of all, I'll, I'll turn to you, Doctor, and, and ask about this this trend. How many Connecticut students lag behind their peers when they when they enter school and, and what sort of deficits are we seeing in, in kids when they enter kindergarten?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, what we know uh, about kindergartners in Connecticut is uh, through a tool called the Early Development Inventory that was completed uh, just two years ago in, uh, in, a, in a, a just a few kindergartens uh, f- across the state. And uh, very surprisingly and, and really distressing is that we learned only uh, about a third of kindergartners are deemed ready for school in terms of their socio competence. And fewer than half are uh, really have the fine motor skills to uh, to do school tasks, so uh, that is pretty distressing. Uh, especially because we know from older studies that um, socio-emotional delays have impeded school uh, kindergarten um, success. But it seems that things are, are are certainly not getting better. So that is distressing.
1: And as I mentioned in the introduction, as kids get further along in school we focus so much on what we'll call uh, classroom achievement, how they do on a a science test, how they do on an English exam. But when kids are, are getting into kindergarten and coming through kindergarten, an awful lot of the linkages between learning and health are really there. You're talking about social, emotional development. You're talking about fine motor skills. These are all things that are being developed at this very early age.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very, very true. And uh, we also know that when uh, – a very recent study, actually, that when children – Um, in kindergarten lag in those areas that throughout life they lag educationally um, they have mental health problems they are uh, criminality is a problem so it really does behoove us to address these problems early really before kindergarten so that kids show up in kindergarten ready to learn Um, you know you mentioned the cognitive that we focus on the cognitive actually the the studies that have been done show only 20% of kids have cognitive problems, but it's uh, closer to a third for socio-emotional problems or um, for other health problems. So we do tend to think of the cognitive, but those other things contribute enormously to school success.
1: What else does the data tell us, uh, doctor, so that we can help to set up a a basis for our conversation here? Because it seems as though this data is very important and potentially very rich for us.
0: I agree. If the data tell us anything, it's that children are arriving in kindergarten already delayed and that our best bet is to intervene early. Uh, use our home visiting, our state's home visiting programs, use our child health providers who see just about 98% of the kids before they go to school, use our uh, preschool and child care programs to uh, to promote socio emotional development, to promote uh, improved motor skills, to promote better health habits. Uh, certainly know that about obesity that the earlier we intervene, the more likely we are to have uh, good results for children so that they, at least they enter k- kindergarten on an even par and able to learn.
1: So, so Jody, let me bring you in and, and tell us a bit more about these linkages between poor health for students and their overall achievement in school.
2: Sure. So it's interesting because we didn't set out to write about uh, education in general. We were looking at uh, some grants that we saw uh, that were focused on children's health. So my editor you know, asked, could I look into this? And the more I I dug into it, the more I realized this is connected on every level. So across the board, people who are focused on children's health are saying, listen, if you are not healthy, if you cannot see the board, if you cannot um, feel safe at school, if you don't feel like you have a place to go home and, and read and study, you are not going to do well in school. And that starts from birth. I mean, that starts from before you're born. Are you healthy as a, as a newborn? Are you healthy as, you know, a young child? And that all builds, that's a foundation that builds up to your preschool and kindergarten uh, years. And we're seeing things like, um, you know, uh, behavioral issues in preschool. So in Middletown, they have an issue where a lot of preschoolers are being expelled because they have such severe behavioral issues. And that's a health issue. I mean, that's something that they're finding the more they can intervene at the homes earlier, the more they're able to help that.
1: This actually links in a little bit with a later conversation we're going to have around physical and mental health being seen as similar and being linked in the primary care physician's office. But it seems, Jody, that that's something that we don't think about when it comes to kids, right? Behavior is seen as acting out. It's seen as something that has to do with classroom management and not so much a mental health problem, potentially, or a health problem for students. And, and you're saying that addressing it in, in that more realistic way is actually something that might help students.
3: Correct.
2: And that's what they're finding. Um, even in, in the preschools in Middletown, they're finding if they can help the preschool teachers come up with strategies. So they're not looking at these as just kids who are bad. They're looking at them as kids who have you know serious issues and maybe issues at home. And they're able to come up with strategies to help them deal with those issues at home or deal with those issues they're having in general to make them able to then focus in preschool and focus on the task at hand, whatever that be. So in Middletown, um, they were probably one of the longest-running programs. So we looked at um, several towns that are receiving this grant uh, called the Discovery Program Grant, and basically the grant says focus on children's education, and more recently we want you to do that through health. Middletown has been doing this for 10 years. They have a program called Opportunity Knocks, and essentially they're using uh, different strategies to try to target children's health before they get to school to try to improve uh, certain targets. And they've targeted in their town um, preschool expulsions, as I mentioned, and childhood obesity and nutrition. So they also, in addition to um, providing support in preschools, They're looking at different ways to help bring down childhood obesity rates in their city. And one way that they're looking to do that is simply helping teachers in preschool and kindergarten integrate more nutrition programs, integrate more physical activity during the day. And one example um, I was given was, you know, if you're going to the bathroom, can you have your students hop like a kangaroo? Something as simple as that. So they're, they're moving more. And then they're looking as early as uh, newborns, they have an effort in Middletown to get businesses to allow women to um, have a room or a private place in the company to nurse. So this is nursing women, um, and their belief is that if we can have more women nursing their newborns, That will start them on good nutrition from the very beginning.
1: How much should schools be the the setting for some of what we're talking about here? It's a conversation we've had often on our program. There's so much put on schools right now to focus on educational achievement, and often schools are seen as the only place where students get a square meal. It's the only place where a student gets socioeconomic uh, help in any way. Well, okay, so should schools be on the hook for all this? Should somebody else be providing some of these services, doctor?
0: Um, You know, interestingly, uh, if we let schools off the hook, they will never have the kind of outcomes that they're working towards. If... They don't address the socio-emotional issues, the health issues, all those other issues. They will um, if the, they will never have the the test scores they're shooting for. The children will never have the cognitive uh, achievements that they're shooting for if we don't address all those other issues. And I have to add, mm. we need to address them really before children get to school. Children need to arrive in kindergarten. You know, we call it ready to learn.
1: Yeah. I, Jody, a last, a last thing for you, and you talked about the uh, the role of the schools here. Obviously, the role of doctors in improving the health of young people so that they're able to do better in school. Um, obviously, doctors are, are squeezed to see more patients in less time. Do you have some examples of how, how communities are partnering with doctors to, to help?
2: Sure. So we have – there's a lot of partnerships going on in general. So in Middletown, I'll, I'll start there because we've been talking about them. You know, Opportunity Knox is supported by the hospital. So Middlesex Hospital is one of their uh, sponsors. And you're seeing things like uh, Connecticut Children's Medical Center pairing up with um, service providers like The Village and Hartford to give uh, nutrition and cooking classes for families. So you're seeing a lot of partnerships like that. You're also seeing, uh, as I noted in Enfield, um, there's a doctor, Dr. Kalman's been working with their group, their discovery program group there, to make sure that doctors are on board with what the community group is looking to achieve. And really, they have the same goal, right? Doctors are looking at children's health. The community groups are looking at children's health. If they can work together, this is going to help everyone achieve that same goal, And what Dr. Kalman has said is, you know, he's found it's really hard to squeeze in um, these developmental screenings that doctors uh, would like to be doing during regular checkups. So they're looking to partner with uh, maybe daycares or a community group or someone who's already doing these screenings. And a lot of times it's at a daycare, you know, you're finding out some information, health information uh, on children. So he's saying, can we just pair up and, you know, share this information so that we're not repeating what we could be doing, you know, we could be using this time for something else, but we still have this developmental screening. We know it's being done. Maybe we have a copy of the report. Um, Likewise, you're seeing, um, and I think Dr. Honingfeld could speak to this more, there's an effort to start sharing some of this data among different community groups. So if one group is collecting data, everyone can benefit from seeing what are some of the issues and then looking at some of the outcomes Mm. of these programs.
1: Dr. Lisa Honigfeld is Vice President for Health Initiatives, Child Health and Development Institute. She'll be uh, staying with us in our next segment. I want to thank Jody Mosier-Gill, who's an Assistant Professor of Journalism at Southern Connecticut State University, who wrote about this issue for Connecticut Health Investigative Team. You can find more on our website, wnpr.org slash wherewelive. Jody, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: When we come back, we don't hesitate to call our doctor when we're in physical pain, but we're much more reluctant to seek help with depression. We're finding that mental health has a big impact on our physical health, and depression can make you physically sick. We're going to be talking about integration in the doctor's office, coming up next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky, and today we're telling three stories about health. Most people don't hesitate to go to the doctor when they have high blood pressure or unexplained aches and pains. Relatively few patients will go to the doctor for ailments that aren't physical, like depression or substance abuse. Physical health and mental health, of course, are all wrapped up together. A physical illness can make you depressed. Depression can make you physically sick. It has many people wondering if bringing both services together in the same office might be a good idea. Well, it sounds like a good idea. With us in studio is Dr. Lisa Honingfeld, who's Vice President for Health Initiatives, the Child and Health Development Institute. And joining us now is Ariel Levin Becker, who's Health Reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, who's been writing about this. And Ariel, welcome back to the show. Thank you. As I say, people are used to going to different doctors for different things. What's the advantage of integrating mental health care and primary care all in one place?
4: What doctors will tell you is that primary care doctor will say, if I refer a patient to a cardiologist because I have some concerns about their blood pressure, they all go. Um, If you refer a patient to a dermatologist, they'll all go. They'll tell you that if if they say to the same patient, you know, I'm a little concerned, maybe you want to talk about some issues with someone, I'm going to refer you to this therapist, I know, they say fewer than 25% typically make the call. So one of the things that that you're starting to see more of is um, having – a mental health professional on the primary care team or sort of more closely related to with the primary care office um, in a way that would sort of make that connection a lot simpler and and wouldn't leave it to the patient to make the call. In a lot of cases, even if patients do make the call, they might find that the the therapist isn't taking new patients, isn't taking their insurance. So even when patients do, do go through the steps necessary, a lot of practices have found that, you know, for whatever reason, they don't end up getting seen. So a lot of the effort seems to be aimed at at really trying to sort of avoid that gap that a lot of people fall into.
1: Well, what are the big ba- barriers that you see? I mean, you've mentioned a few of them there. I mean, obviously, maybe people can't get an appointment right away. Maybe there's, there's certainly, and we've talked about it before, there's stigma. But what are some of the other barriers to having this integrated approach right at the primary care physician level?
4: Yeah, it's something that people have been talking about for years as something that, you know, could both save money and improve care. Um, and it just... For a long time, it really hasn't been widespread. Um, some of the barriers are, there's some differences in the two professions, um, you know, doctors and um, mental health professionals. Um, there's some cultural differences in the way they operate, um, even down to one calls the person a patient, one calls the person a client. Um, there are different payment systems. Um, there's often not funding for that kind of integration. Um, so there are a lot of sort of smaller barriers. and And I think, in the past, there hasn't been as much incentive to do anything about these kinds of gaps. Now one of the reasons you're seeing changes is that increasingly there's a move in healthcare toward paying for performance, um, paying based on patients' outcomes and cost effectiveness rather than just simply for every service delivered. Um, and that really gives them more of an incentive to really try to address the underlying issues going on with a patient. I think there's probably a parallel with dental care which is also something that's you know deeply linked with your physical health but very rarely is there sort of a close connection. Um, there are different insurance systems. they are different professions. Um, and that also is very separate.
1: The fact that those are different insurance systems is, is part of what keeps your dentist and your doctor kind of separate. I thought that the America of today under Obamacare and with, with health care and mental care parity, that you know mental health and physical health are all supposed to be wrapped up together, but you're essentially painting a picture that they're not quite there yet.
4: That's true. I mean, certainly in terms of insurance coverage, there's more closeness between mental health care and physical health care than there is with dental care. Um, And and when I spoke to people about why you're seeing sort of uh, bringing together of these two fields, um, one of the reasons people cited is that more people have health insurance in part because of the health law and that health plans now have to cover mental health care. That was not always the case in the past.
1: And the other thing that you mentioned is this, this pay for performance. This is something new that that's under Obamacare, under the Affordable Care Act. Explain how exactly that, that plays out in the world of mental health care, because performance is something, I suppose, a lot different. There's a lot of measures for your physical health that perhaps we haven't arrived at quite as clearly for people's mental well-being.
4: Yeah, and this is a shift that's still going on, and I would say it's still sort of in the infancy. Most people you talk to in healthcare will agree that at some point in the future, the way healthcare is paid for and delivered is going to change. Exactly what that's going to look like, I don't think anybody could credibly tell you. They know exactly what it's going to look like. But basically, the idea is that right now, your doctor gets paid for every visit you make, every procedure they do, every test. They don't get paid to keep you healthy. They don't get paid um, if you never show up because you're always really healthy. And that makes it difficult, even if they wanted to do something like check up on all their diabetic patients and make sure that their blood sugar was under control. There's not a lot of financial incentive for them to do that or to invest in the things that would help do that, like hiring a care coordinator. So the idea is that in the future, the the goal a lot of people in the healthcare system have is to move toward models where that's the sort of thing that would be rewarded. Instead of um, just paying to do more and more, which it turns out has not been making people healthier, mm. the idea would be paying um, healthcare care providers to sort of manage the health of larger groups of populations. And they would most likely be compensated based on, you know, both meeting certain targets in terms of patients' outcomes and also cost-effectiveness.
1: We're talking with R.L. Levin Becker of the Connecticut Mirror, who's been writing about integrating physical and mental health services at the primary care office – also joining us in studio is Dr. Lisa Honingfeld, Vice President for Health Initiatives the Child and Health Development Institute. We were talking in our first segment, Lisa, about integrating schools and doctors and trying to get better educational outcomes through uh, better health care for students. This is something that also seems fairly basic and something that that we might need to approach in a way, uh, more quickly than we are right now, integrating mental and physical health in the doctor's office. What do you say?
0: Uh, You know, absolutely. I think the imperative and the opportunity to do that in in pediatric care is uh, is really, really important. It's, uh, you know, when you consider that children uh two and younger see the doctor 12 times and then uh throughout their growing years go at least annually there are so many opportunities to identify mental health concerns early when we know that intervention can be most effective and uh we know and we know when we intervene early that as we discussed before they're better ready for school but also we avoid the uh the extensive services needed later on in life so i think that pediatric care is really that a very ideal setting for um, for integrating uh, behavioral health with primary care, it's a, in addition to that. Um, most child health providers have a pretty solid relationship with uh, families. They see them so often, and they are uh, they're a trusted source of care. That we we need to take full advantage of that and extend that to child health to child mental health services and. To, to have a mental health provider on site as part of the team allows that to happen seamlessly within the practice.
1: Something we have talked about in the past, though, and I think even with Ariel on our program, is is what happens throughout the course of a child's life if, say, they ha- have some sort of a mental health issue, whether or not they're actually enough pediatric mental health providers out there to do the work. Is that one of the barriers, Doctor, that we just don't have enough people who practice in this field to be able to get the sort of help for kids, you know, before they even get to kindergarten age, the sort of treatment that they might need or even uh, a checkup that they might need?
0: Right. So that's definitely true in the mental health field in terms of child mental health professionals. But there are other barriers that that compound that. Uh, one Ariel mentioned is um, the funding streams and that... Oftentimes, for children to receive mental health services, they need a diagnosis. And when we look at children who are two, who are three, who are one, who may be at risk of serious mental health problems, they may not have a diagnosis. So those uh, mental health services can't be paid. Uh, That's one. Also, um, mental health professionals training does not always not fully address that at-risk group of children. And that's unfortunate because that's where we can make the biggest difference in terms of uh, taking the the glut out of the system later on by addressing problems early and uh, so that many children avoid having to go to the mental health providers later in life when their problems are much more serious.
1: Let's go to Michaela who's calling from the Hartford area. Hi there, Michaela.
3: Hi. Um, the way that I understand the integration of behavioral health into a primary care setting is that those primary care physicians will be responsible for either developing memorandum of understanding with select behavioral health providers or it's this push to get everything under the same roof. And one of the concerns that I have about these out, the outcome of this push for this change is that it's going to really limit patient choice and access. To providers who are really aligned with their values and the qualities to to effective.
1: Michele, your line's breaking up a little bit, but I think uh, your question for Arielle, I, th- I think we we get it. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about that?
4: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Is is you know, on the one hand, the providers might have relationships with other providers that they're comfortable with. On the other hand, how do you make sure that? for the patient or the client, um, they're able to see the providers they'd like to see. Um, that That's definitely but
1: what what we also see, I mean, part of the push in, in medicine doctor, especially in, in a state like Connecticut, we have three or four large hospital groups that have an awful lot of control over, I suppose, all the oxygen for health care in the state. And because there's so many integrated services within these groups, it, it is very easy, as the caller might suggest, to have your primary care physician uh, refer you to people within that system for mental health or some other sort of, of health care need. So the patient is saying, well, maybe this is good to have a medical home that's all under one roof, but there's not as much choice for me.
0: I think that is an absolute concern. The cost and the benefits of uh, having, uh, ensuring that you have that connection, ensuring that uh, what happens in uh, your child's mental health services is uh, well integrated with what happens with their physical um, health services, as opposed to. to going outside and um, worrying or uh, doing a lot of that coordination yourself between those two sites. And granted, there are a lot of parents who are very uh, competent and interested in coordinating that interface themselves, but there are a lot who are not, who are overwhelmed by that and would benefit from that seamless connection and that well-integrated inter- well service.
1: Uh, I want to go to another phone call here. Pam is calling from Hartford. Hello, Pam. You're on Where We Live.
0: Hi there.
3: With Corporate America, and I say that in a very loose term, you know, companies with thousands of employees offering employee assistance programs, why are employees so afraid to take advantage of it? I myself have used it and found that I've gotten better care than I've been able to find on my own through my own insurance company directories.
1: Before I actually turn it over to our guest, Pam, so you're talking about employee-assisted programs, and these are are often offered outside of any other health care plan for a company, and you're able to get mental health services. You're saying that, in your experience, a lot of people just just aren't taking advantage of these services.
3: I'm saying that they either don't know about it, or they're uh, either maybe embarrassed, afraid, ashamed, or... Maybe they just don't realize that it's something that could actually work for them, or maybe they don't think they have a problem and they just
1: really don't know how to go about it. Uh, Pam, thank you very much for the question. Ariel, do you have any thoughts? You know,
4: one thing that often comes up with, with any sort of mental health care um, is, is there's a stigma that, that you know, often people cite that as a big barrier to keep people from from seeking care. And, and certainly when it's connected to your employer, I can imagine that, um, that might be an additional concern for people if they're not made. It's not made really clear what the safeguards are in terms of their privacy.
1: But and that's. But I think it points out one of the interesting concepts here behind this this integrative approach, which is if we look at our suite of insurances or plans that we get from our employer, we have on one hand dental care. It costs us something. It means we're going to have to shop for a dentist under one column. Uh, we're going to have health care. We're going to shop for uh, doctors under another column and all the assisted stuff that goes under there. And then in the third column, we provide some sort of an employee-assisted program, which I, I can say, honestly, can be incredibly useful to people. Maybe it's underutilized, doctor, in part because, well, that's three columns we've got to shop under. It's three different things. Part of what we're talking about today is wouldn't it be great if somehow or other employers were able to pay for one suite of services that just got you everything under one under one roof?
0: Yeah. I, you know, that issue of all those separate funding streams with all the different eligibility requirements and all the different spheres of utilization really um, compromises not all, but many of the benefits of uh, of having health insurance and of the Affordable Care Act and ensuring that all Americans have health insurance. It's um, I uh, Ariel's written really some great uh, some great articles on uh, yes we all have health insurance but it's always not so easy to use and that's really our, our probably the next frontier on this is uh, putting our services together in a way that make them more accessible to people.
1: Healthcare access as opposed to just making sure that we have have health insurance. I, a couple last questions for you, Ariel. We mentioned some of the. Some of the models. I mean, do you have any that you want to talk about that you saw as really useful here? Different ways to integrate care in the way that we're talking about here.
4: Yeah, just quickly talk about two, and they're sort of opposites. One, um, I visited a practice that's part of Hartford Healthcare, but it's a primary family medicine practice in Colchester. Um, and what they did is they brought in a psychiatric social worker who is part of the primary care team. And so um, if a doctor is talking to a patient and um, maybe the patient has some anxiety or is dealing with some grief, um, he'll say, you know, I'm going to go down the hall and get my colleague Janine. Um, you can meet her. And and then, you know, if, if the patient would like, they can, you know, meet with her for three or four sessions. Um, often that's enough to sort of take care of, of the issues. If not, you know, she'll refer them somewhere out. So that's one model where it's all done in the primary care office. There's actually a totally separate model um, that the state is running um, through local mental health authorities. And that's for people who have both serious persistent mental illness and a chronic medical condition. And the idea there is sort of flipping the model on its head and saying that in in a lot of cases, there are people who much more regularly are seeing a mental health provider. Um, And often for them, the challenge is having good access and a good relationship with um, a medical provider. And so that model sort of takes the opposite approach. It's called a behavioral health home, although it's not a residential place. It's just a home in the sense of the home base. Um, and there the you have these um, 15 local mental health authorities that are sort of taking on a larger role for the both the mental and physical health of, of their clients. And so doing things like coordinating their care with uh, the medical system, doing a lot of health and wellness type things, trying to in a lot of cases they're they're clients who have histories of trauma which can make it very difficult to feel comfortable getting a medical exam so a lot of work with patients on you know helping them feel comfortable, uh, maybe getting screenings, that sort of thing um so it's sort of an opposite approach, but in both cases it's sort of trying to to start where the patient or the client seems to be most comfortable and sort of bringing the services uh, sort of around there rather than requiring them to sort of figure out how to navigate these two separate systems. A
1: a very important last question for you then. How do programs like this or ideas like this help drive down or drive up the cost of health care? I mean, are these more costly to implement or long-term will this end up saving us money?
4: The model I just mentioned, um, behavioral health homes, um, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, which runs, it believes it will be budget neutral, Um, certainly People think if you get more people into primary care, you address issues like depression, anxiety, you address them early, that can sort of stave off a lot of problems. Certainly if you have untreated depression or anxiety, that can make it much more difficult to take care of things like heart disease or diabetes. So there is a sense that, you know, this could improve people's health and that could, you know, lead to fewer medical complications down the road. But we'll see.
1: Arielle Levin-Becker writes about health care for the Connecticut Mirror. Ariel, good to see you once again. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I just want to thank Dr. Lisa Honigfeld, who's vice president for health initiatives at the Child Health and Development Institute. Thank you so much, doctor. Thank you. When we come back, we're going to talk about hospice, how it's becoming a desired alternative for many people who want to spend their final days in their own home with those they love. Fewer African-Americans than white Americans opt for hospice. We're going to talk about why, coming up next, where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. According to the National Institutes of Health, over 50% of health care dollars are spent on 5% of the sickest people, primarily on high-cost interventions during the last year of life. Many people are turning to hospice to avoid painful treatments that can diminish the quality of their last days and keep them from the people and the home that they love the most. But African-Americans reject hospice care at much higher rates than white Americans. Only one-third of blacks compared to almost 50 percent of whites use hospice. We're going to try to find out why with our guest, Sarah Varney. She's senior health policy reporter for Kaiser Health News and the author of XL Love, How the Obesity Crisis is Hurting America's Love Life. She wrote a story about African-Americans and hospice care for The New York Times. Sarah Varney, welcome back to Where We Live.
3: Thank you so much.
1: I gave you some of the statistics up front, but but talk a bit more about this disparity and why we're seeing this uh, between blacks who use hospice and whites who use hospice.
3: You mentioned that about 50 percent of whites choose hospice at the end of life. This is according to national Medicare data, but that only about a third of African-Americans do. The numbers are um, even more stark when we look at advanced care directives. So these are legal documents, essentially, that tell your loved ones um, or the hospital what you'd like to do if if you become incapacitated. About 40 percent of whites over the age of 70 have those documents and only 16 percent of African-Americans. So I spent quite a bit of time looking into this issue. I did a piece for the PBS NewsHour and then as well as the story for the New York Times that explored these issues. It was really fascinating talking to African-American palliative care uh, researchers and doctors themselves and many, many patients. And really what you hear is that there's a real toxic distrust of the U.S. healthcare system. I think it's important to remember that the Tuskegee syphilis study, which left many, many African-American men untreated for syphilis, um, which has not only affected those men, many of them died, um, but it also affected their offspring. That experiment didn't really end until the early 1970s. So many of the people, African-Americans who are um, seniors today, for them, that's that's a fresh memory. They also have memories of segregated hospitals. They have memories of trying to go to a doctor's office and seeing a sign that says, no Negroes. So even though we sometimes maybe think that these are kind of cultural artifacts, for many African Americans, those are very um, present memories for them. Um, and they continue to see discrimination in the healthcare system today, which we actually know looking at the data also plays out. We know that doctors, when presented with a white patient and a, a black patient who say the same symptoms, this has been repeated in many, many studies, African Americans are often treated differently than whites with less aggressive treatment. So there remains this very toxic distrust of the US healthcare system. And I think what I heard was. You know, we've been fighting so long to get access to quality medical care. Now you're telling me that there's nothing left you can do for my mother and you want to essentially, quote, unplug her. Um, And there's a lot of distrust of that
1: advice. And that, of course, is so it's so tragic and so difficult. But a lot of what you've said, including these many, many studies about how Physicians often treat African-Americans as opposed to white patients. This all points to distrust in the system and why African-Americans might not seek medical care as readily or they might not trust what their doctors have to say. But why does it extend to hospice? When, when we're coming to the very end of life, sure, there may be fears that maybe doctors are saying they, they want to unplug a loved one too soon. But hospice is seen by so many people around the US as a as a comforting way to spend the last days but this distrust even extends all the way there sarah which i find sort of shocking and a bit alarming
3: well i think it really gets down to the, the two central issues one is imagine you're in a hospital your your mom is not doing well she's failing a doctor turns to you and says There's nothing else we can do. Uh, We really need to take quote comfort measures. Mm. We really need to turn to hospice. Even these words don't really translate, is what I is what I heard from researchers who study this issue. That that the term even the term hospice um, has a negative connotation in the African American community. The term comfort care has a negative connotation. There's this sense that you don't want to pay for the added measures that I want done to myself or to my loved one, um, and that's why you're doing this. There was a lot of distrust, particularly of the insurance system, even though almost all of these people that we're talking about are on Medicare. What I heard at this fascinating uh, roundtable in Los Angeles where we brought together a group of elder African-Americans was, even if I fill out this advance directive and I tell my insurance company that I want to have every possible measure done, they're not going to do it anyway because they're not going to want to spend the money. So the level of distrust, really, it's not just the doctor giving the advice, but it's the it's the hospital trying to make room for that bed so that a private pay patient, somebody with, quote, better insurance, I heard this a lot, would come in and pay more money. Um, and then the insurance company themselves, uh, even though that's Medicare, uh, having some uh, sort of nefarious you know, motivation here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is what I also heard uh, from many African American researchers who study this issue, and also from many African Americans themselves, was that perhaps there's a religious prohibition against hospice, and that there is perhaps redemption in the suffering that occurs at the end of life. And this hope that even though there's a trust in God that God will do what he wants to do with the end of my life, it's his ultimately his decision that it's my job and my family's job to keep me alive as long as possible, no matter what, take whatever measure possible so that a miracle can happen. Um and so what you hear from black doctors who work in palliative care is that they really are going into the churches. This is what this is really what I focused on in my story in the New York Times is these efforts in the African American churches to try and give people you know, more information about really what hospice is. And um, there's a story that I, a family in Buffalo, New York, um, a pastor and his wife, who sadly lost two of their three sons to sickle cell disease. The first one died a very, very painful death. Sickle cell disease is a very painful death, very painful disease. And then they were convinced to try hospice with the second one, very reluctantly. They did, and they are now sort of proselytizing, if you will, about hospice in the black community in western New York. So it was amazing to hear their story, just how much they had to struggle to even agree to do the hospice, and then how shocked people in their community was that, oh, their son was able to stay at home um, and be taken care of by a team of nurses. You know, people were shocked. They said, oh, well, when you go, when you put a loved one in the hospice, they just send them away to die. They send them into a corner to die, and we don't do that to, we don't do that to our family members.
1: So a lot of it is just taking individual experiences like the one that you have and explaining to people who maybe don't know that this is really what we're talking about when we talk about hospice. We're not talking about some nefarious plan. We're not talking about the other thing.
3: Exactly. And it's interesting because, you know, starting in January – uh, Medicare is going to start paying doctors now to have these end-of-life conversations. Essentially, these are this is the you know, the death panels from a number of years ago. Hmm. Like as a country, we've um, many people would say thankfully have moved on from that conversation. And, and and Medicare is going to go ahead and starting in January going to pay doctors to have these conversations. So there is some concern among African American palliative care doctors that just because now it's going to be paid for doesn't necessarily mean that this issue that we've been talking about is going to be addressed. So unless you really think about you know, how does this message need to reach African-Americans in a way such that their concerns, their distrust are very well rooted. And so it it can't just simply be, oh, you need to trust us now. You need to trust hospice." It really needs to be these personal stories from African-Americans themselves saying, you know, I did this and here's what my experience was.
1: And important to note here is the reason why coming up next year, Medicare starts to pay for this is because a lot of the cost of health care is really in this last year of life. And so, you know, the government is trying to bend the curve back on that. And I assume a big part of trying to bend the curve is to try to convince more people that hospice is something that's, that's going to be useful for them and useful for their families.
3: Yeah, I think if you talk to people in the palliative care world, you know, they're very hesitant to even talk about the financial part of this. I mean, obviously the bean counters know what's going on. And that's an important thing to recognize, given that we spend, you know, practically 20 percent of our GDP on healthcare. So something has to change. No other country in the world does that. But I think, you know, among the palliative care specialists, it's been let's talk really about, as you mentioned in the beginning of the segment, you know, the quality of life. When somebody is hooked up to a machine, when they're on um, ventilation, when they're uh, really dosed up on a lot of drugs, it's very hard for them. You know, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of stress and anxiety, not just for the person who's dying, but also for the family. Um, so I think there's a lot of there's a desire to talk about the sort of the quality of those last months or weeks of life.
1: Sarah Varney is senior health policy reporter for Kaiser Health News. You can find her work often on PBS, NPR and in the New York Times. She's also the author of the book XL Love, How the Obesity Crisis is Hurting America's Love Life. Good to talk to you once again, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: Our program today was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Tolarski. Continue this conversation online. Go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live.